Welcome to Small Talk, a podcast hosted by Boston Children's Hospital nurses. And today we have some featured guests and our topic is going to be sex education and what is the nurse's role. We're going to let our guests introduce themselves, tell you a little bit about their role and how they got interested in this work. Rebecca, would you like to start? Hi, everyone. My name is Rebecca Sherlock, and I am a nurse practitioner and the clinical coordinator for the Spina Bifida Center. And I got interested in this work actually through my DNP project. But on reflection, I really started to understand that I needed to learn a lot about sex education. So I think I'd been in a lot of denial about my understanding for what the patients needed. And as I went through looking up research for my project, I came to understand that I didn't know very much. And I can admit my own vulnerability in this and probably my own bias and what the patients needed. And so I've now become from the quiet, like, we don't talk about sex to we're going to shout about sex. <laughs> so I'm excited Great. to share what I've learned for patients uh, with nurses. Great. Thank you for joining us today. And Julie, you want to go next? Hi, everyone. My name is Julie Wheat. I am the nurse manager on the bone marrow transplant unit. I have worked here for uh, since 2006 as a bedside nurse and then had taken this role about four years ago. And with me is, hi, I am Megan Lurby. I am the clinical coordinator on the hematology oncology unit. And I was previously a bedside nurse since 2007 on the bone marrow transplant unit with Julie. And uh, we got into this work because we found that we both had a love for caring for the adolescent patient population. We were always assigned the teenagers um, or the young adults because that's who we just jammed with. And we were also the ones always asked to do our post-transplant sex education with them because we were comfortable with it. And after doing it several times, we together realized that the guidelines were just outdated. Why is everybody uncomfortable talking about this? And we went to our current manager and said, we have an idea. We are going to do an evidence-based project on updating the sex guidelines. Well, we actually brought it up to our manager. Um, we're not sure if you guys are familiar with Salt and Pepper from back in the day singing. So we went into our manager's office and we decided busting out. Uh, let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about B and T. Let's talk about all the good things and the bad things you can do. Let's talk about sex. And our manager loved it at the time. And she was like, all right, great. EVP is happening and find out your evidence and let's see if there's a practice change that's warranted. And that's what we did. Wow, that's amazing. And you guys really need to record that. <laughs> I definitely see it in the top 10 for sure. All right. But tell us a little bit more detail about your project. Yeah, so historically, um, all bone marrow transplants need to receive safe sex education prior to discharge. And as Megan had previously noted, our guidelines are really outdated. They had last been published in 2011. And truthfully, it wasn't inclusive. They weren't standardized and they weren't evidence-based. So when we decided to look into this, we found that we worked with our providers, um, looked up the literature to see what was out there. And there were limited studies that existed to talk about that increased sexual behavior would cause more infections for our patient population. And so with that, because it was so restricted, we were like, all right, well, you know, people have sex. People want to have a relationship with people and be intimate, whether they have a cancer diagnosis or not. And so if there's a way for us to 
safely give them the tools and resources, let them know what they can and can't do. We should be doing that so we can improve their overall quality of life. Well, that's really interesting. So I didn't even know that about bone marrow transplant patients. Other than that patient population, are there other populations of patients too that would benefit from these guidelines? Yes, I think absolutely. You know, the reason we focused on bone marrow transplant patients was because it's part of our practice that they had to receive sex education for patients who were 12 or older. And that aligned with the school system practice of that's the age that they begin sex education in school systems in general. And bone marrow transplant patients are immunocompromised. So they are at high risk for infection and on special medications to suppress their immune system. So generally for patients who receive their own stem cells, they are immunocompromised for roughly two months after their transplant. And then for patients who receive stem cells from either a sibling donor, family member, or a stranger or a cord um, transplant, they are immunosuppressed for at least nine to 12 months after transplant. So that is a large window where just giving them vague guidelines about what they can and can't do just didn't feel right. We wanted to know that they were going home and could be sexually active if they chose to and be safe about it. And, you know, other patient populations where this could relate to, and we actually looked at their clinical practice guidelines, is the solid organ transplant patient population, because similar to our patients, they're also on immunotherapy that would suppress their immune system. So our basic focus was for that, like, is this an increased risk if they, you know, kiss their partner, if they had sex? So it's a little different for our populations because we're looking at those that are immunocompromised. I think this could be used for other patient populations throughout. I mean, it talks about safe sex practices, but specifically geared towards a solid tumor, I mean, a solid organ transplant and or a bone marrow transplant patient or even the oncology patients. And in my current position on the general oncology unit, I just recently got a call about two weeks ago from the Jimmy Fund saying, what are we teaching teenagers? They're asking. And I found that we focused so much on updating these guidelines for this specific population of bone marrow transplant patients, but oncology patients also have periods of being immunosuppressed as well or neutropenic. And so that is something I hope to look into for that population, whether there is anything in the literature about neutropenic oncology patients as well. Do you think all teenagers could benefit from the guidelines and from the education that you've created? I think all teenagers can benefit from upfront, clear conversations about sex. Our guidelines are really specific to immunocompromised teenagers, and therefore they're a little more limited in what they're able to do and have more medical information, such as platelet criteria, et cetera, that wouldn't really apply to the general population. But in general, I do think teenagers would benefit from more openly talking about sex education. And I think, you know, with the adolescents, I mean, we say adolescents, but like Megan said, we do 12 or older, but like if they're having sex, they're having sex, right? And so as nurses, regardless of where you work, it's awesome that you could even bring forth just that comfortable relationship where it's trusting that if they have questions, they want to talk about it, just setting the tone that this is normal behavior and it is okay to talk about it and how can we best prepare you for that and guide you. So I think it could be used for all if you took out the specifics of, you know, what we're saying they can and can't do. But I think as a nurse, just getting down to the core of building that trusting relationship that, you know, maybe a patient might not want to ask their mom or dad or someone else or even the doctors, just be nice to form that relationship where they could talk to you about it. How well was the education received by the patients? 
Would you say they were embarrassed talking to you about it or that they were okay with it or they wanted more information? Our previous guidelines that we have since updated were very vague and it was almost more uncomfortable because there was this gray area of like, I don't really believe what I'm telling you. I don't understand it myself, but I've been told I have to convey it to check my box. And they would almost look at us and either like laugh probably not ask questions. Or if they did, we didn't really know the answer to them because we didn't know the reasons why these decisions were made. So truthfully, I feel like the updated guidelines have been better received. We have a paper documentation of an education sheet and we review it with the patients and it's quite detailed. So if they're capable of reading it for themselves, we ask them to read it. We highlight the main points and then ask us if you have any questions. And honestly, I think they've been fairly receptive. We do respect parents or cultures that wish for us not to speak of this. And then we might have the conversation with the parent if it's more appropriate for them to relay it to their child themselves. But in general, when we pull parents out of the room and say, hey, we're going to go in and talk to your child about this, they're okay with it. Yeah, I think they're really happy to know that we're having these conversations with them. And truthfully, what the best change that we had from doing this was that it standardized our teaching. And so all of the nurses, it used to be, you know, Megan and I, because we were always charged nurses and we were comfortable doing these conversations. Um, even a nurse educator wasn't super comfortable at the time either. It's just, it's uncomfortable to talk about sex. You know what I mean? And especially if it's not your own family member. And so I think that what was pretty cool is that because it was standardized, because it made more sense, because it was more inclusive of all sexual practices, the staff were doing it in a more comfortable way. So we kind of set the tone when we went in, if you weren't comfortable doing it, you already made the patient feel uncomfortable. And now people feel a lot more comfortable. And I will say the best part really has also just been with our patients outpatient because all of our patients follow up with Jimmy Fung Clinic and they might not have questions for us in the moment, but what we've heard feedback from the nurse practitioners outpatient, they're having a lot more questions being asked. Oh, can you clarify? So I can do this. I can't do that. And that did not happen before. So we feel like we were able to move the needle a little bit for sure. Just getting back to the nurses, I'm curious, how did you get the nurses to a place where they felt comfortable talking about it? Because I know like in the ER, we're supposed to do our initial nursing assessment. And yeah, we're supposed to discuss these topics. And some nurses feel really uncomfortable and it's hard for them to initiate those conversations. I'm just wondering if you have any tips or tricks about, you know, how to get over that fear or uncomfortable feeling, shall I say? I think this big shift was after having updated guidelines. And when I say we spelled it out, we spelled it out. Like Megan and I had many uncomfortable conversations with our uh, clinical experts. Like we were like, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. And we got nitty gritty with all different things, asking what they can and can't do. And the way that we wrote up the clinical practice guidelines, it's pretty spelled out for them and kept a good rhythm if you were to just use that. But we also presented it many times to our staff at staff meetings, at other things throughout the hospital. And I think that the staff appreciated that the whole time our intent, both Megan and I, was to truthfully, yes, we wanted to standardize care, but we really wanted to improve the quality of life for these patients. They don't have a great quality of life. And so when we spun it that way and we gave them stuff that was evidence-based, people had an easier way of doing it. So I think it was a lot of cheerleading at first and get your little core group that will do it and have them start doing it. And then it just now, I mean, I don't even know the last time I was asked for me to specifically do it because they just do it now. Mm -hmm. And we kept the focus on quality of life and patient safety. It's a matter of preventing infections, 
and promoting quality of life. And if we enter a room and we are comfortable and free of judgment or shame, then you're going to just build that relationship with the patient and they'll be more comfortable to ask questions or to be accepting of the education you're providing. That's awesome, you guys. Rebecca, I'm curious, how did you implement this in your setting? So we are not quite at the implementation phase. So we're in the process of developing education. And so I think historically, patients with disabilities, and in particular spina bifida, have really been treated as asexual. So the idea is much like Megan and Julia are doing is to move the needle. So there is not a lot of literature out there. There are no guidelines to begin with. And so that's really been the change. So the lack of understanding is what is making healthcare providers be like, mm, I, I'm not sure what to do with this, right? And so we have to change that idea of stigmatization and reverse that. So really bring it forth from a health equity perspective. Nurses are really in, in a key place here, right? Because they're the ones that are developing their relationship with patients. They probably have a little bit of time with patients. And so you have to really bring them along. And so the idea for me was to develop a tool for them and educate them specifically about how sexual health is impacted by spina bifida. And parents are asking these questions really from the time kids are born, right? So is fertility impacted? What are the special things that they have to do in terms of what? how can this be impacted? So latex avoidance is something that's really important for patients with spina bifida. Positioning could be impacted. Neurogenic bowel and bladder definitely impacts sexual health and wellness. And so how do all these things come into play? And then you're thinking about menses and what, where is that? And so I think we have to kind of develop some guidelines. And so I actually use national sex education standards. Some people know about those. I didn't. So I went and kind of used those as a guideline. So there's seven topic strands and they actually start at kindergarten and they start educating kids from kindergarten to high school, but they are not disability specific. So I used literature that I found to kind of fill in the blanks that was spina bifida specific and did that to educate the nurses. And so we're working on some things here at Children's to do that, and we'll see what happens with it. And how do you think that's going to be received? Or if you have tried it, what has been the response from the patients? So the anecdotally, what I've heard is this is really fantastic, and people are really happy to have been recipient of the education. That's really amazing work for both of you, you guys doing all this work. As far as your evidence-based project, I understand you created a poster for Nurses Week. Yes, I did. So that was my literature review. And so the basic idea from that was patients are asking for information. Providers are not sure if the patients want the information. So the result is that nobody's getting anything. Nobody's giving any information that you can actually change the results by teaching providers. So they actually did a little study where they put out some uh, literature on safety and they put that in front of the providers and they actually changed the results for patients. They actually said, well, look, now that we've put this out here and taught you this, they had a direct impact on what the uh, patients were getting. That was going to be my next question because I am curious how the providers have received this. And even in the school setting, is this something that's brought to those settings or do they leave uh it up to you guys? For me, I think that there's a potential here for that. So, you know, I'm looking at the critical caring theory as one of the models that I'm looking at for a theory. And I think, you know, the first is really develop the trusting relationship. 
with the patient. And then as you go through the critical caring theory model, one of the things is to work on advocacy. And so working on these other relationships, and that is working with school nurses. And in urology, nurses work with the outside people all the time to talk about catheterization and how you work on that. And this is a perfect extension of that. Like, let's teach you a little bit about these questions that might come up and how do we manage that. And do you think any of the providers have been having these conversations before you started investigating this topic? Um, I think they have a little bit of it. You know, some of them say, yes, they do. But there was actually a study that looked at urology fellows and they said it really went across the country. And I don't think that all of them are comfortable because they're not sure what is the right language to use for patients who might have some cognitive disability. And so they weren't sure if they should be talking to the people that were coming in with them or directly to the patient. And so it's, I think it kind of goes across the spectrum of whether or not they're doing it. And that raises a good question. How do you know if you're using the right language? For me, one of the things that I put on the educational module is start by using basic language and using correct body parts. And I'm sure that Julie and Megan did that. Like, And that that's a big shift for people, right? So you also have to get comfortable with that language. And so I think that's a big thing when you were probably working with your nurses is that you have to just use the correct body parts. And I think that also helps actually for patients with cognitive disabilities. They can then be empowered to explain to their providers when there's a problem because they're not using a word that nobody knows. Right. So they have an issue with something while they're describing the correct word and then it's easily translatable to the provider. So I think that's a big piece. Julie and Megan, did you find that using the right terminology or the terminology that the patients understand? Was that difficult for you to figure out? Difficult to figure out. I think it was just getting used to being uncomfortable with it. Like Rebecca had noted, you know, just the different terminologies of like, you know, we weren't just saying about having sex, like the different forms of sex and what that means. And, you know, it, it, did, it does matter. And so I think Sometimes you, when you first started doing the teaching, you're kind of like, oh, I can't believe I just used that word. You know what I mean? But you got to get used to it, get comfortable. And I think it all goes back to like we all keep saying is that trust and relationship. So even if I got uncomfortable in that, I would just keep it real, you know? And so that, and like, this is for you. How do we set you up for the best success to be safe if you're going to participate in any sexual activity and still be able to enjoy your life? And I think even the term sexual activity is fairly vague. So we directly addressed kissing, masturbation, penetration, all different forms of sexual activity just to cover the bases. We thought that if we put it all out there and like, that's what I mean, like it was like a risk even with our doctors and it sounds so intense because you talk with some young adults, but like we wanted to get it all out there. You know what I mean? So these are things that they're going to be wondering about. So let's not make it uncomfortable for them. I'll, I'll go right out there and say, I blush easily. <laughs> and so saying these words, I go right up front to the patient and say, look, I'm going to probably turn red saying this, but here it is. And so then you can admit your own vulnerability, right? Yeah. Or you can say like, this might make me uncomfortable. So I'm, I'm just going to say this to you. Anyway, I had this conversation with a patient last week because she was having trouble with urinary leaking when she had her period. It was the first start of the conversation about how is she going to manage her period and her sexual health when wellness, right? And what were we going to do about it? Because she was very uncomfortable talking about how she was going to do this. Is she going to get an IUD? Is she going to use a patch? But this all goes along with taking care of herself. And she's at that age. So I said, look, I'm red underneath my mask and I showed her. And so, you know, I think it's just saying, look, this is hard for all of us, but we all have to do it. And then over time, we get more and more comfortable because we have these conversations over and over and over. But you can be right out there and say, like, this is hard for all of us. Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, keeping it honest. I think it goes a long way when you're delivering anything to your patient, any information. I'm curious, how do you document this? So we document under the education tab, flow sheets, saying sex, discharge sexual ed, like completed. That's how we document it. And then the Jimmy Fund, the assumption is that they'll follow up with it. I don't know how they're, they document it or whatnot. But like I said, I do think that it's opened up a forum that at least after the first couple of appointments, they notice that the questions are coming up. So they are just naturally doing education with them as well. But we have to, it's part of actually like the discharge checklist for us. They have certain things that they have to do prior to discharge. And if they're 12 or older, sexual education is our required task that has to be completed. It's on the list. Do you have any way of evaluating the effectiveness of the teaching that you've been doing? Like when you do follow up, do you ask these patients, you know, did this education make a difference for you? Or, you know, has this been helpful or not helpful? I'm just curious if there's any way to evaluate it. You know, we had thought about that and then the pandemic hit. <laughs> we got a little sidetracked. But thank you for the reminder, Denise. But uh, <laughs> You're very welcome. Happy to help. You know, our evidence-based question had to do with if certain practices increase your risk of infection versus not doing these practices. And so we really found that it would be impossible to collect pre and post data and have a control group when you're talking about sexual activity and infection. But in terms of the effectiveness of the education, that is a really great idea and something I think we should explore more, whether the methods we use to teach and sheet in conversation yeah. were effective, whether there's anything we missed. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason I asked that too is I know uh, hospital-wide, we're also asking about suicide, the ASQ questions. And I know that a lot of nurses are still uncomfortable approaching that topic as well. Just wondering, how can we apply what you guys have learned through your work, maybe to help with the ASQ questions and for nurses to feel a little more comfortable with that topic as well? I think it's just like a matter of making it their own feeling, you know, like it's this, all of these things that we're talking about are part of life, right? And so like if they weren't important or didn't happen, we wouldn't be having to check a box that we did this discharge education. We wouldn't have to be asking that an assessment with admission. It's just getting rid of all that stereotypical stuff behind it. But that's hard, right? You know, but it only takes a couple of people to make the change. And I think if you do that, then you can have the change of culture within your departments, you know. Obviously, housewide throughout the institution would be amazing, but I think having a goal of starting small with what you can control within your own area, I would encourage people to do that. You know, Megan and I, we've been very blessed with this project. We had no idea that this project would have been, first of all, so great for us. And we felt so excited because we knew that we were doing something really good for the adolescent population that doesn't get as much attention as everybody else in the organization, right? Also, like we've been able to present this so many times and I find... You know, I presented it during Nurses We Get Clinical Inquiry with like, our CNO sitting there. And I remember dying when I heard that she was going to be invited because I was like, I'm going to be talking about sex in front of our CNO. And I had to talk myself down before the presentation. And she was actually the first person that came up to me. And she actually followed up with a really, really nice email talking about it just takes a couple of people making this change to talk about these tough topics, like keep pushing forward. So that's what I would recommend to other people. And I think just normalizing it. We talk to everyone 12 and older about this and validating. Some people find it uncomfortable, but we do it anyways. This is to protect you. This is to provide education, making it normal, knowing that they're not targeted, that we do this for all patients and the reason why. Well, if you think about that, that's what happens in school. They have sex ed starting in school. And so I think that's one of the challenges is that kids with disabilities get sex ed, but it doesn't apply to them. And so that's where the challenge lies that the specific information that applies to them 
isn't there. And so I, you know, if you think about that from a health equity standpoint, most kids with disabilities don't have the material that they need to pursue sexual health and wellness, right? They're lacking a lot. And there isn't any kind of information that's done in a coalesced kind of way for them. And so that's why I'm excited to think about working on this spina bifida project. There is some interest from like the American Academy of Pediatrics. There's an increasing awareness and there are some literature that's starting to come out about standardizing practices from urologists on how to put together a practice in an office. And really they're using nurses as the frontline person. Like they're the go-to person like that can be the, the, the helper in the office, if you will, that should be the frontline person really. Like the urologist kind of manages the medications and things, but then the nurse is the triage person. And so I think that's really starting to come to the front and center, but maybe not everybody has that for all the different disabilities. And so I think there's a big push for that. Yeah. And I think what you said is just so interesting from a health equity standpoint that, you know, not all of these kids with these disabilities all have either access to the same information or like you said, I I was really amazed by what you said when the kids with certain disabilities say this doesn't apply to me. That breaks my heart. So we need to somehow make sure that we're capturing these kids and that we're meeting their needs and that we're giving them the information that they need and that they're looking for. Sex is a basic human right. That's really what it comes down to. And everybody deserves this. So I think Julie and Megan saying that, you know, everybody gets this. Well, everybody should get this. And we can't exclude anyone. People can say they don't want it because from a cultural or religious kind of standpoint, but the option has to be there to receive it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's such a critical point that you make. Absolutely. This has just been so interesting. I really feel like it's been an eye opener for me because I'm definitely one of those people. I'm like, oh, do I have to document on this section? Can I just say, yeah, we kind of did it. It's so important. And I really appreciate the information and the work that you guys are all doing on this topic. Thank you. Thanks for having the best opportunity to speak about it. How would you guys encourage another group to get started in this space? I think you just have to jump in. I think you have to acknowledge that it's something that everybody deserves and then just start looking at the literature and jump in and get your guidelines going. Don't get scared that when you, if you do a uh, lit search and don't find anything, it sounds like all three of us have just said that, like there's not a lot out there. That kind of freaked us out at the beginning because we're like, we're, how are we even going to move this forward? But actually that worked to our advantage and also is like, that's why this is so needed. We need to keep looking into this. There has to be more out there to do this for patients. Yeah, I think if you don't find the answers in the literature, you still have options. That's not a hard step. You can benchmark against other institutions. You can go to expert opinions, which is what we did. We actually found it quite interesting when we benchmarked against adult cancer or adult bone marrow transplant programs that their um, guidelines were much more lenient than ours. And we have this age group that can be treated either at pediatric institutions or adult institutions, and they're getting differing information um, even though they're receiving the same therapy. So, and I would even say, because I'll tell you what I did, I went into CVS looking for non latex condoms and I surprised myself by setting off the alarms. Right. <laughs> so, I, I, I'm going to write about that because I think it's super important. So, I'm going through and condoms are behind a case in case y'all didn't know. And so, I lifted up the case and whoop, whoop, whoop. I'm like, oh my God. Right. So, uh, totally embarrassed, but. What if I was 15 and in a wheelchair? Yeah, right. Why did you have a case? I don't know, but maybe the people think they're going to steal them. I don't know. So first of all, you have to counsel your patients like, okay, if you're going to go buy condoms, remember, it's going to alarm and they're behind a case. So I'm going to advocate for you so you know this is going to happen because I 
as an adult woman was like, what's happening here? Right. <laughs> so the other thing is they're low to the ground or high up. So I'm going to counsel you. Make sure you look up high or look down low. These are the things that you have to think about and you want to counsel your patients for. So go and explore the explore what they're going to be looking for. I was kind of surprised, like, what's happening here? Who's coming after me in CVS? <laughs> and you're on video to boot, I'm sure. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, you know, they can't order them from Amazon. All the mothers who say, what's coming in this brown box that you ordered from Amazon? Oh, nothing, Mom. But you want your counseling to practice safe sex. But then how is they supposed to get the things that they need to practice safe sex? I know you talk about the main point of this is to build a trusting relationship with the patient so that they feel like they can talk to you openly about what's on their mind. So in the ER, we're with our patients a very short amount of time. Do you have any advice as to how ER nurses could continue this work when the time we're spending with our patients is usually very short? Just staying authentic and keeping it real, even if you have limited time, you know what I mean? I I just feel like, I don't know, you can kind of get a good vibe off of someone really early on if they're a genuine person and that you're their primary focus. So I think that what I would say is if you're going to address this type of topic in the ED, do it when you have more than five minutes to talk to the patient mm-hmm. and feel like you're really invested in talking to them in that moment and hearing them and giving them an opportunity instead of right before you're getting ready to send them up to the floor or something. I think maybe even asking them, do you have a healthcare provider that you trust to have conversations about sex with? It may not be you in that moment in the five minutes, but do you trust your primary care provider or even offering them some resources? You know, like they'd probably much rather Google something, but to know the appropriate place to find it rather than go down a rabbit hole on the internet, you know, to say, here are resources in case you have questions. Yeah, that's great advice. Thank you. Have you ever dealt with pregnancy with a patient? Yes. So, and I think that was early on in, um, in the spina bifida center. And I think thinking back on that, it's because they were not educated because I think they were surprised when it happened. And this was, this was before I was interested in sexual health and wellness. So I think looking back on that, that was probably should have been a wake up call for me. Like we need to do something for these patients. And because for young women with spina bifida, their fertility is the same as people without spina bifida. Men, is it's different, but we need to be educating them to tell them, look, you have the same risk of pregnancy as everybody else. And so we're not that where the problem lies. I think that's a gap in education that we absolutely should be addressing. For bone marrow transplant patients, there are some medications that impact fertility and just having honest conversations about contraception. It blurs the line a little bit with everything it's high. I don't know if this is something, but it's an interesting topic to talk about because you're educating them, but it is possible. I mean, especially with the bone marrow, you don't know what's going through their brains if they want to, they want to reproduce because they're quite right. And, and those conversations do happen pre-transplant during the consent process and fertility preservation, if that's a choice. But then... We just kind of avoid talking about it all together. Yeah. They're impatient. And I think that you bring up a good point, though, because I think out in the world, everyone thinks if you get chemo, that means you can't have a baby. And that's not true for all chemotherapies. You know, not all of them do have a like an impact on your fertility or reproductive um, system, et cetera. But it's like, oh, you got chemo, you can never have children. And so it's still educating that, you know, you still have to have safe sex. And even if it's not about getting pregnant, it's the risk of the infection. So you want to wear a condom so that you're not having sexually transmitted diseases. 
So I do think that there is a gap with that still. And Megan's right. Like, you know, I think we paused answering because we're kind of like, wow, like, yeah, we've done this great job about providing education so that they can have sex and do things after transplant. But there's that gap still of misconceptions of what could happen just based off their treatment. And oh, well, I wouldn't get pregnant because I've had chemo and it's not necessarily true. As far as normalizing it, it's a very awkward question for nurses. I think no matter across the spectrum, you can't say just our young nurses struggle with how they ask the question when you get in the nursing admission assessment even and you kind of go through the litany of questions and you get down to the the social history section when the questions pop up. I think some of it too is like, you know, a lot of situations we have parents that are in the room or some guardian and even the awkwardness of asking them to step out. And I thought you brought a a great point was, you know, stepping out of the room with the parent and explaining what you were going to talk to the patient about is a great, great way to explain, to kind of segue it and decrease the comfort level. Because I think there's an element where nurses do have a concern about upsetting families. Honestly, maybe there should be like sim on this. I was thinking the same thing. Without getting awkward or yeah you know yeah we, we have so many uh, new hired nurses like the rest of the hospital we're aggressively hiring and we have a lot of young staff um, I was just thinking we do a, a new hire skills and socialization day and this would be a great topic like you said keeping it real and normalizing our podcast today is focused on like sexual education and but even like this uh, we say we used to say sex drugs and rock and roll those questions yeah. everybody seems to stumble with right yeah uh, even practice kicking parents or caregivers out of the room. You know, it's funny, Tracy, you'd say a lot of the end nurses, but I'll tell you, the people that the hardest time with this were the older nurses. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I was saying. Yeah. The, the, those of us that blush easy. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. That, but you can't even imagine that a teenager's having sex. Like, so they, they don't even having sex. Yeah. They are having sex. Like, yeah. they are, you know, and that's okay. Let's set let's them up to be safe. But I think also we have the approach with the parents, like you still want to be very respectful, right? Like even though this is a discharge requirement, these families lose so much control in the hospital no matter where they're going, right? Mm -hmm. And so we do try to be respectful. And that's why our practice is to talk to the parent first outside of the room and say, hey, they do this education. Are you cool with us? Having you step out so that they can feel like they can just talk to us and not feel comfortable with their parents. I mean, like I'm 39 years old. I don't want to talk about sex in front of my parents. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that um, we always tried to be really respectful. I think out of all the times, like we really only had pushback from like maybe like one or two, and one was a cultural reason. But you do see a sigh of relief. I feel like. Do you agree? Like the parents, like no, we're even going to talk about this. Like, I think that they're like, oh, but they're like, yeah, this is realistic. And they're actually happy. But it's really important. I would suggest that Denise, like, you know, for the ED, anyone is just trying to stop for a moment and put the parents in like perspective first and foremost with being respectful for them, letting them know the teaching you're doing. We let them read the sheet first and like they might cringe when they see masturbation and stuff on it. We're like, yeah, but they might masturbate and we want them to know what they what their platelets have to be, et cetera. But just letting them know and giving them a sense of control of saying yes or no. And I feel like they always do really say yes, like, please do it. They're happy. And they they go get coffee or do what they need to do. Mm -hmm. And I think, like you said, probably a lot of parents have a sigh of relief that, oh, someone who's clinical, who knows what they're talking about, is going to educate my child in a way that's probably better than I ever could because the objective person coming into the situation and you're not a parent or relative. So I would think they would welcome you <laughs> to yeah. do that. I know I would. <laughs> yeah, they usually do. I think you, to that point, you know, when you were talking about educating the parents, I think you can give them some tools too, because I think the other thing you can think about is from a safety perspective. So you know that children with disabilities are, youth with disabilities are at 
increased risk for um, interpersonal violence. And mm-hmm. so if they don't understand what's happening to them, that's a problem, right? So by teaching them this, I think you give them a protective element and you can also give the parents tools to kind of explain what this is. Even giving the parents tools to help them explain more. So for kids with medical devices like artificial sphincters or things like that, they can kind of go over it and over it and over it to help them understand what that means and how that um, impacts their care or medications or whatever it is or with catheterization. But I think interpersonal violence is a big one for kids with cognitive disabilities because if they don't understand that someone could be hurting them because they just don't understand, I think sexual education is important. That's heartbreaking. Yeah. It is, mm-hmm. but it's it's a real risk. We need no, more Rebecca's out there. Oh my gosh, I was just thinking the same thing. I love you. I know. I know. Actually, you know, the work all three of you are doing are really helping our patients um, navigate um, their sexual development and helping them really to grow into um, healthy adults. And normalizing things. Exactly. Exactly. Grow and be, you know, that's, the, as you said, it's it's a normal part of our lives. So interesting, though, if you're right, I feel like they, the younger nurses and younger staff and yet just, you know, younger people around are much more confident in how they speak about sex to one another. And, and it's not a problem. And it is the old ones. A lot of it depends on how you were raised and your values and some of your own biases, you know. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's so important to just be inclusive of all sexual practices and not make assumptions. Right. So mm-hmm. just put it all out there and the see what comes back. Take from it what applies to them. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What resources do you have for patients when they're questioning their sexuality? There's a there's a really cool book that I used. Actually, my mother sent it to me when she knew what I was doing for my project, which I think is really funny. It's by Corey Silverberg, and I think it's called What Sex? He's written a couple of books. He wrote about sex and disabilities as well. It covers everything from pornography to um, disabilities to it's everything. And it's a nice big book from Amazon. Let me see if I can pull it up and I'll tell you the real name. I'll definitely add that resource. Even with the pornography, it's so easy to access the stuff now with it and all the phones. So. Uh-huh. Yeah. so if any of our listeners wanted to reach out to you guys, could they do that and get more information? Absolutely. Absolutely. Great. Absolutely. Oh, it's called You Know Sex. You Know, comma, Sex by Corey Silverberg. Thanks for sharing. This has been awesome. Also, Great. thank Erin for bringing up the topic and uh, rounding you up to come today and um, participate as our podcast guest. Well, this is a cool forum. Thank you for inviting yeah. us. Yes, thank you, you so much. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about B and T. Let's talk about all the good things and the bad things you can do. Let's talk about sex. This podcast is sponsored by the Innovation Digital Health Accelerator, Boston Children's Hospital, with support from the emergency department and our inpatient medicine programs. Until next time, thank you for listening to the Small Talk Podcast.